0: 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work.
1: shopify.com slash work.
0: Hello and welcome to the Political Party podcast. This one features Keir Starmer, Shadow Secretary of State for Exiting the European Union, a Member of Parliament for Hoban and St Pancras. He's absolutely brilliant. He's bang on top of the detail. He's got some great stories taking us into the shadow cabinet meetings, into the cross-party Brexit talks, and just into politics in general. But we really get insight into what goes on behind the scenes from him. And he was just so relaxed and friendly and warm and open, as well as being highly intellectual uh, and really on top of his brief and clearly mentally sharp. Um, So he was great so um, there's nothing really more to say about the interview apart from the fact that it's about to start but um, big news for the uh, I always do a couple of specials at the Edinburgh Festival uh, of the show as well as my stand-up show and I'm delighted uh, I'm doing two, one on the 14th and one on the 20th of August and on the 20th of August I'm going to be joined by the First Minister of Scotland Nicola Sturgeon I'm absolutely buzzing to be able to interview uh, the First Minister especially in Scotland and at the, you know with everything that's going on so that's very exciting. I'll be announcing the guests for the 14th of August soon. And of course, my brand new stand-up show, which I'm in the process of uh, writing and finishing at the moment, Brexit Pursued by a Bear, is on at the Pleasance 4th in the Pleasance Courtyard from the 31st of July to the 25th of August. Enough of the self-promotion for now. I'm going to leave you in the hands of Keir Starmer. <laughs> Hello, good evening, welcome to the show. Uh, give me a cheer if you've been here before. Yay! Excellent, welcome out regulars. Give me a cheer if this is your first time. Yay! Excellent, welcome first timers. Thank you very much for coming. Well, what an amazing world. Uh, <laughs> Boris Johnson is going to be our next Prime Minister. Aww. I know, but it's fucking great for me. <laughs> it's the injection my career needs. It's fucking brilliant. I'm, you know I've, I've been, I, mean, I wouldn't say I was Nostradamus, but four years ago, as a joke at the end of a, of a, of a tour, I, in 2015, I said five minutes at the end, where I looked ahead to election 2020, which I predict would be fought out between Jeremy Corbyn and Boris Johnson. And I just want to apologize. I didn't know I had powers. I'd have wished for something far, better. I'd have just wished for Tony Blair to come back or something sensible like that. But it's, um, I mean, what a choice we're going to Because at the moment, it looks like he's going to win. The choice facing us as a nation at the next election will be Boris versus Corbyn. Now, I don't think that is the best choice available. I don't accept that. I mean, it's basically a choice between a populist, racist Brexiteer and Boris Johnson. And I
2: don't
0: (laughs) don't accept that as a choice as a a progressive man. But. um, Boris, of course, his campaign engulfed in scandal. I mean, the irony was, you know, they're trying to keep him in the house to keep him out of trouble, and that's where he got into trouble. <laughs> so, he got into,
2: fucking.
0: I mean, imagine if he becomes Prime Minister, even getting fucking kicked out of Downing Street. His girlfriend's throwing his bags out the top window. <laughs> My God, it changed the pub quiz question, wasn't it? Where does the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom live? That's right, 10 Downing Street, depending on his behaviour or on his friend's couch. <laughs> The fact that we're going to have Bo- a Boris, a serial shagger, as Prime Minister. People have been going, I was out, I'm sure the Prime Minister tried to pull me last night. It was an Inferno's in Clapham, I'm sure he was in there. I'm sure, I think I might have got off with the Prime Minister last night. Fucking incredible, some of the, imagine him as I, Mr. Speaker, in addition uh, to my, this morning I've had meetings with ministerial colleagues and others, in addition to my duties in the House. A uh, further such meetings later today, and then later today, uh, a date. Yeah, uh, I'm pretty excited. Uh, can the prime minister tell the house till he gets a second base? Well, I, uh, come on, you know, prime minister never tells. Uh, gentleman uh, never tells. So, uh, yes, yes, we, yes, we did. Um, he, he, he announced in a in a in a in an interview to unset the pressure off. Have you had any hobbies? He said, Yeah, I, I have uh, a hobby where I I I paint uh, and I take. Uh, You know, there's crates and I I turn them into buses and I I paint the people in them. Uh, He didn't didn't go as far as I'd have liked, and uh, on the side, massive fucking lies. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I drive them round my living room, Yeah, great fun. Um, But he'd been in a lot of trouble for a lot of things he said. Of course, his previous words are coming back to haunt him. Uh, Mainly, uh, one of the things he said was, you Muslim women, when they wear the full veil, look like letterboxes and he's been asked to explain this. Now, what no pundit or commentator has yet taken him to task on is the fact that they don't.
2: <laughs>
0: it's a fact I've never, whilst on my way to post a letter, <laughs> I've ever made, I've never sidled up to a letterbox and asked it to apologise on behalf of all Muslims for ISIS. <laughs> oh, one of the quiet ones, oh yeah, yeah. He also, uh, this is part of the problem, he tries to sort of get around some of the racist things he said. He says, well, you know, I think people want someone who is street talking. Like, yeah, what you've done is confused. People who just want facts with being a racist swat. <laughs> There was a crucial distinction, you know. No, part of the problem is people do want politicians to be straight-talking about what the fuck Brexit means for our lives, for our economy, what their, you know, whatever tax cuts he's promising to people, what effect that'll have on our services. That's where people want people to be straight-talking. Not when you start racially abusing minorities, no victim of race hate has ever gone, yeah, I was just walking down the street and this guy just started straight-talking at me. Yeah, when he started telling it like it is, it was highly offensive mealy mouth bullshit, and he also to get out of it. Or you might have seen the TV debate on the BBC. he Said, "Well, look, I, I, you know, I have no issue with the Muslim community. My my great grandfather was a Muslim. Great grandfather. I mean, that's going way a way bit back. As to, well, some of my best great grandfathers are black. <laughs> One of the shittest arguments I've ever heard." Um, But he's up against Jeremy Hunt, who at the moment doesn't look like he stands a chance, uh, mainly because Jeremy Hunt talks to the public like he's just walked in on them naked. (laughs) Oh, um, I, um, right, yeah. I I mean, I, I I think, yeah, I, um, I think people do actually deserve, um, anyway, I'm gonna leave now, and, um, perhaps we can talk about the NHS. I don't sense that this is the time. Um, We've got that sort of (laughs) wide-eyed. Sort of wide-eyed look at him, uh, look about him. Uh, Dominic Raab is now uh, fully on board for uh, for uh, <laughs> Boris Johnson's campaign. Raab, uh, a strange man. So I I, um, I hosted the One Nation Conservative hustings uh, a few weeks ago, and uh, I had to interview Gove, Raab, Hancock, and Hunt in order in front of a group of Tory MPs uh, for half an hour each separately. Dominic Raab, he's one of those NAF politicians who has these kind of pre-prepared lines that I just don't think work anymore. And he used one in um, in one of the leaders' debates when he does that thing where he go. And this is part of the problem is, what some of the Tories can't get their head around is how do you talk about a very privileged upbringing whilst not turning an audience against you? Now, the best way, I think, is the Tony Blair, David Cameron way where they say, look, we we're very lucky to come from the backgrounds. You know, I want other people to have the sort of life I had and just deal with it like that. Dominic Raab can't deal with his own privilege. So he does that thing where he goes... You know what, I went to a good school, but uh, you know, my mum had to work two jobs to make ends meet. Like, you went to one of the country's most elite public schools, what two jobs were they? <laughs> yeah, she was a QC and a Premier League footballer actually. <laughs> Cash rich. <laughs> I'd rather people were just honest and just, you know that whole thing where they go, yeah, times were tough, you're like, you're the heir to a hundred million pound, don't fuck me about You we just went, you know what, I'm fucking loaded. Yeah, never had to work a day in my life, been very lucky. Uh, I was a prick at school. Actually, this guy's at least honest about who he is. I'm warming to him. And he does that thing as well, where he he will do. He tried to make himself sound like a really good person. He said, Look, I've helped a lot of people, helped a lot of women who found themselves on the wrong side of the tracks and needed help uh, in my work as a lawyer. Well, that doesn't count. Can't count that as charity work. Charged him a fucking fortune, mate. What? He does that thing where, and I think this is so shit when politicians go, I want to talk to the couple at home, working hard, putting some money aside, hoping one day to have a deposit. As if people at home are going to go, fuck we. We're a couple. We we work all the hours, God sends. We're trying to save some money. Maybe Dominic Raab is the guy for us. He's he's just described us perfectly. They're only ever positives, are they? No one ever says, I want to talk to the guy sat at home, eating wotsits, wanking himself red raw. Yeah, that's me. I don't, know I, chose that. I don't know why that example came to mind, anyway. Sometimes it's Doritos, anyway. but he, um, Of course, Rory Stewart, friend of the show, uh, he um, didn't make it through to the final two, Rory. Um, I, I mean, I'm sure a few of you were here that night when he was here. I, I really loved him, but there was a moment where he said, and I t- I'm not sure he thought this through, where he said, you know what? We could abolish hospital car parking charges tomorrow." <laughs> I said, well, yeah, you'd have to get the money from somewhere else. And he went, what? <laughs> went Well, yeah, yeah, I mean, it's not that no one has ever thought of...
2: <laughs>
0: hospital care. It's not like everyone's gone. Oh, we've got enough money, we just aren't charging them. <laughs> like, you have to, I was like, well, you have to tax, you have to cut, you have to borrow elsewhere. Like, I, if that's the limit of your thinking as well. If you've never realised that before, why are you only limiting your horizons to hospital car parking charge? But he, he, someone said to me, Well, he's just stating the obvious, isn't he? I was like, Yeah, he is on the whole. And that, at the moment, seems to be a revolutionary act. But that, we haven't had someone stating the obvious for fucking ages. It's actually quite refreshing to hear someone state the obvious. But the thing is that, that Rory had, I, I think he sort of displayed it here, is he's very good at making uh, the normal sound profound. Um, just by talking slower. I think that genuinely just appeals to it. If you want a pint of water and I, I say this hand on heart, you must get a glass you must take it to the sink yourself, if capable place it under the tap and then turn that tap on and anyone who tells you you can get a pint of water any other way. I am willing to talk to the people who turn the tap on first. God, this guy understands water. He's fucking incredible. And he's a diplomat. I drink water all the time. This is the guy for me. Um, Labour's anti-Semitism problem uh, has has continued despite the uh, Tory leadership contest. Lisa Forbes is the latest uh, Labour MP. She won the the Peterborough by-election. And there are calls for her to be suspended from the party already because historically, you'd have thought they'd have figured this out before they selected her. But um, she'd liked a number of Facebook and Twitter posts, one of which said that Theresa May had a Zionist slave master's agenda, one of which blamed Israel for the creation of ISIS. And uh, there was another... What was the other one? Um... Something about vermin. Um, Anyway, Corbyn is livid with her because she didn't mention Iraq once. (laughs) And she was on for a full house. Barry Gardner was defending her on telly and he said, look, if we can forgive Michael Gove for taking cocaine, we can forgive Lisa Forbes some racist tweets. Okay, is that how it works? (laughs) I've never thought of morality like that. Just because Michael Gove did coke once, it doesn't mean you can forgive all crime. (laughs) Corbyn, Corbyn has continued to prevaricate over Labour's Brexit position on a second referendum. What is amazing about Corbyn is he's a man who hates the centre ground, and there's only one issue he's ever to find ever tried to find the centre ground on, which is Brexit, and it's the only issue that does not have a centre ground. He's a fucking idiot. And he um, he, he, he said his policy is one of constructive ambiguity. Which given that we were promised straight talking on his politics, is a but it's the total opposite. Um, the problem is, and I fall into this trap, is every about two months there will be a, it will go on the Today programme Jeremy Corbyn's finally going to fully get behind a people's vote. And you go, right, this is it now. This is game on. Right, this is going to be the moment. And then it never happens. It basically, I'm as gullible about that as I am about um, rumours of an Oasis reunion. <laughs> a fucking sucker for it. Straight on Twitter 10 o'clock in the morning going, ah, ah, oh, fuck. Should've re-released some B-sides. It's actually, it's not a bad analogy for the last Labour Party manifesto. A load of stuff that frankly wasn't good enough for previous albums. Ooh, went a bit flat, didn't it? Some, some real lovers of the 2017 Labour Manifesto in here. Oh, pardon my language. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, uh, we have a phenomenal guest in the second half. Someone I've wanted to interview for a very long time genuinely have. And I'm very, very excited that we are joined uh, after a break uh, by the shadow Secretary of State for exiting the European Union. Um, I mean, I've just realised what a fucking dumb idea it was to do a load of material slagging off Labour's Brexit position <laughs> while he's still got time to escape. So uh, let's see if we make it through the break. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, as always, you're a wonderful crowd. I can't wait for the second half. And now, I've been Matt Ford. See you in a bit. Cheers. <laughs> Thank you very much and welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Well, very, very excited about tonight's guest um, because he is uh, not only one of the most talented uh, members of Parliament, one of the most talented Labour members of Parliament, for those of us who uh, perhaps aren't getting what we want uh, from uh, (laughs) politics in various ways, he is a a kind of unique hope, really. One of the most talented members of the Shadow Cabinet and in so many ways, really, effectively the leader of the opposition who's been (laughs) been able That wasn't even meant to be funny, that was just, um, I, I genuinely meant that. Someone who's properly holding a government to account, using fact and using proper parliamentary tactics and strategy, which, you know, we haven't seen for a while, so it's nice to... It's just nice to see a proper politician at the uh, opposition dispatch box. So, ladies and gentlemen, he has been the MP for Holborn and St Pancras since 2015, he's been the Shadow Secretary of State for exiting the European Union, and he is one of the biggest stars in British politics. Please give a huge welcome to Keir Starmer! <laughs> Welcome to the show. Please have a seat. That got a laugh then when I said you were the effective leader of the opposition. So I'm, not sure if they were, I'm not sure if they were laughing at the cheek of me being rude to Corbyn or whether they, they disagree with my assessment of how talented you are. But um, do, you, do you feel in a way that you carry the hopes of uh, at least 48% of the
1: nation on your, on your shoulders? Yeah, sometimes it's a bit like that. Um, we've got to... We've got to have both sides represented in this. And um, I, think, I think one of the big things that happened after the referendum was that um, when the Prime Minister set out her red lines, they were so extreme that lots of people who voted to remain felt they'd been sort of pencilled out of the future of the country. And so it was really important, I think, to give... You know, if we're going to give voice, we've got to give voice to both sides. But we have genuinely actually tried to represent both sides in this. Not been easy.
0: No. Uh, I mean, there's one thing to represent both sides... Uh, and there's one to kind of represent neither. <laughs>
2: <laughs>
0: uh, I mean, in terms of the party's um, uh, result at the European elections, getting less than 14%, do you think that was a verdict to the public on Labour's position on Brexit?
1: <laughs> Look, I mean, the first, let me put in a defence and then accept the challenge.
0: Uh,
1: defence is this. When we went into the 2017 election, everybody said... Um, you're trying to, um, by accepting the result, but going for a close sort of relationship with the EU, you're never going to please the Leavers, you're never going to please the Remainers. And they're wrong about that, actually. Um, Because as we went into that, everyone's going to, you've really screwed it up, we're going to get 0%. That having been said, when you look at the EU election results, uh, you have to accept um, that there's got to be a change in our position, frankly. Um, You can't have the Labour Party getting less than 10% in Scotland coming fifth for the first time in our history and coming third in Wales behind Plaid um, and uh, pretend that your Brexit policy doesn't need some adjusting. And uh, you know, I went around the, I went around the country and um, as you, as you campaign, you know, we have these lists, very efficient lists of the Labour Party. It's fantastic. You know, you've got how people voted last time, whether you they think they're sympathetic. And then you've got you know, sort of the, the really good ones are marked up as Labour, Labour member. Um, normally, when you go to these doors, um, you're not so much persuading them to vote Labour because that's kind of taken as read. Um, but you might say, well, will you, will you put a poster up for us in your window? This time, people opening the door saying, well, Labour member, I'm not voting for you, which was um, you know, a bit of a, a shock. Uh, to the system, so. So it you wasn't... knocked
0: on Alistair Campbell's door.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Alistair Campbell is one of my constituents, <laughs> and I always like to, my constituents. I say, "Let me know what you think," <laughs> uh, and so he does uh, <laughs> regularly. <laughs> I mean, the first thing he did when he got his letter expelled again was to phone me up and say, "As my constituency MP, will you write a letter of support for me?" <laughs> and did you?
0: Yes, I did. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. So, I what's thought... going to happen with that?
0: Do you think they'll have to readmit him?
1: I think they will. I mean, you know, um, I don't think it's a particularly good look to um, spend as long as we do on some of the other cases that we have to deal with, and, and then to um, eject Alistair so summarily after the results. And after all, he only, all he said was that he voted Lib Dem. Um, so, <laughs> and, and having knocked on doors across the country in the EU, um, if we were to expel every Labour member who voted Lib Dem, our, our proud number of half a million members <laughs> might get a bit evident.
0: <laughs> 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 but do you think, I mean, they, they said that it, it was under the rules it was all to exclusion. I mean, I, I used to work for the party and I remember, we'd, I remember that rule well because I would try and expel people for it myself. And, that's not really what the rule... I was never able to kind of use the rule in the way that Jeremy Corbyn's been able to use it against Anastasia Campbell. There is more to it than that, isn't
1: there? Yeah, I mean, the, the principle is that you can't support another candidate at um, an election, you shouldn't campaign for another party, and that is auto-exclusion. And that's a good reason for that, if you go around saying vote for somebody else. Um, my frustration I mean, and this is a really serious point, is I've been saying for some time if we're going to auto-exclude people for campaigning for another party at election... We ought to auto exclude those clear cases of anti Semitism. Why can't we just have the same rule um, so that yes. you're, you're out straight away? Um, and it's, it's, it's such, a, I mean, I do, I mean, some of those cases are arguable and they've got to go through a process, but some of them are completely unarguable. They're so clear that um, if you said to someone, right, thank you very much, you're expelled, in the same way that that was said to Alistair, that would send a really powerful message. And I just think we've got to adjust the rule. If, if, if supporting a Green candidate or a Lib Dem candidate at a, an election is enough to get you excluded, and in Al- Alistair's case, expelled for five years, then a, a clear case of anti-Semitism ought to get at least the same sentence, it <laughs> seems to me. Yeah. <laughs> I, don't think it's a, I think it's a difficult case to argue.
0: No, but it, it doesn't seem to um, fall on the right ears, does it when, it, when it comes to the leadership? They don't seem keen.
1: Well, I mean, we've just been to slow in the whole process and um, even adopting the international definition of anti-Semitism took the whole of last summer when it could have been done much more quickly. Um, The great tragedy is, you know, um, Jewish communities across the country are losing faith in the Labour Party and we need to restore that and the only way to do that is to demonstrate in no uncertain terms what we're going to do in clear case of anti-Semitism.
0: So so with Alistair Campbell, what what really struck me about it was obviously there were... I imagine, quite keen to get rid of him, and, 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 and that was, like, that was a, 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 a handy excuse. Secondly, uh, what I thought was strange about it, given the obvious uh, parallel with uh, or the contrast with the anti-Semitism cases, they're picking a fight with one of the most effective spin doctors <laughs> alive. He's going to keep this story going. And yeah. when he was at his sort of front gate, I just thought, he even knows how to give them a different picture. But the whole thing... He knows what he's doing
1: and he's running rings round. Yeah, I mean, I've you know, had a lot of discussions with Alistair over the years. I mean, I, I profoundly disagreed with him about Iraq um, and said so at the time because I, I genuinely thought it was unlawful and we shouldn't be involved in it and wrote about it at the time. But up and down, but on, on things like, you know, um, the work he's done on a, on, on a people's vote, etc., then, you know, it's been good to have those discussions. They've been challenging along the way. Um, but, um, you know, he is Labour. And he's been Labour through and through, so um, I don't think we're so smart um, to kick him out.
0: No. Um, So, uh, obviously, you face a a government that's got its own problems as well.
1: Yeah. I mean, how
0: how do you feel about Prime Minister Boris Johnson?
1: (laughs) I shudder. I mean, the idea... (laughs) I mean, where do you start with him? Um, I I think it may... This whole bluff where he sort of ruffles his hair and pretends he doesn't sort of know very much, and everyone goes, oh, it's brilliant, because underneath he's so clever. Yeah. Um, I actually think it's a double bluff. Yeah. I think, <laughs> I think he, he wants you to think he's really clever, because he's not really clever. Yeah. Um, and so the double bluff is that that is what you get. I mean, I don't know whether you saw the interview with uh, Laura Kunzberg the other day. Yes. Um, it was just guff. Everything he said, that, that on, the, on the serious questions she was asking him, he was just coming out with complete and utter nonsense. Um, and so, you know, do you want that as your prime minister? Preferably not. Um, uh, is, are the EU um, negotiations the most difficult since the Second World War? Yes. Do you want a really good diplomat knows how to handle other countries? <laughs> yes. What are you getting in Boris Johnson? You know, his reputation when he was Foreign Secretary was absolutely awful. But the, the thing that really gets me about him is this casualness with the truth. Even that picture that came out this weekend of him in Sussex, etc., I don't care what he does in his private life. I really don't. Um, but the fact that that picture came out obviously faked, and that he couldn't care less that it's out there at fake. It doesn't even matter that it's fake. This sort of, it, it's beyond bothering to care whether you're telling the truth or not. I think is re- I mean, it all started in the referendum when he you know, standing in front of the bus with 350 million on the side. This casualness with the truth, I, I genuinely think that you can have a bust-up with anyone on politics, but you've got, you've got to accept that there's got to be at least a truthful premise uh, for what you're saying. And once you abandon that, where are you? And so, actually, I thought, the, the interview with Ian Dale, I think it was yesterday, where he was asked 26 times, you know, when was it taken? I don't want to intrude on oh, your private Ferrari, life. Yes, oh, Nick yeah. Ferrari, yeah. Um, w- w- uh, when was it taken? I don't want to intrude on your private life. And he just wouldn't answer the question.
0: Well, you just, well I, come on, I, yeah, I, when it was taken, by the way, I think we should be talking about the issue of Brexit, yeah. uh, you know, and then you say, well, let's talk about Brexit. Well, I, yeah, come on, I'll talk about something else. <laughs> <laughs> It's constantly, you know. He thinks he's he's got a, he's got a level of charm, but he is exhausting it.
1: Yeah, I'm not sure about the level of charm actually. I think <laughs> it, it, it doesn't work on me. Um, I keep thinking that the public see through it. Um, I just hope so. I don't really know. I mean, I I, I think they do.
0: But it's not the public who we'll choose them, is it? I suppose it's Tory party members. Yeah. Who we we may have some. Do we have any Tory members here tonight? Was sort of quiet ones don't want <laughs> to Tory shame people but um, not that there's so, nothing I mean, wrong with mean, but it, it is there. pretty
1: I mean you know here, here's someone who's saying he's going to change the tax laws um, and um, you know have tax cuts for those who earn more money um, contrary to what their manifesto said he's going to change the direction of travel on Brexit he's going to go for no Brexit if necessary and doesn't feel he's got to face the country to actually get approval for any of that just whatever it is 60,000 members of the Conservative Party Pretty undemocratic stuff.
0: I mean, in terms of him versus Jeremy Hunt, I suppose by definition, if you don't want Boris, you think Jeremy Hunt would be a better prime minister.
1: It's a difficult one, isn't it, for me? (laughs) (laughs)
0: Um,
1: Yeah, I mean, the idea of Boris Johnson being our prime minister is really horrifying, you know, because uh, him as the representative, you know, what is a prime minister above all? They're the representative of the country. And the idea that, we are sort of represented or we are known by um, the, the, the person who is Boris Johnson is really concerning across the world. I mean, G- Jeremy Hunt's got his own problems. Um, but, um, you know, as between the two of them, I think Boris would be a disaster. Also, I just don't think he knows what he's doing on Brexit. He hasn't got any, you know, All the answers he's given are just factually wrong um, and complete nonsense.
0: At what point then do you think, because we, we are living in a period where it feels like the truth has less currency, or, or at least more voters are less bothered, that we're living in a more emotional time. I mean, at what point do the rules catch up with him, do you think? Or indeed this era?
1: I, I think they could catch up, up with him pretty quickly, and I hope they do. In other words, I think within a short period of time, when he's put under you know, scrutiny as Prime Minister, having to answer for things that actually happened, um, it could pretty quickly fall apart. I don't think in the end the public are going to go along with this sort of buffoonery. You can't, you know, you're trying to run the country, you can't muck about. This is not a game. Um, and I think it, it, it will fall apart pretty quickly. But if, if the person scrutinising
0: him is Jeremy Corbyn, <laughs> yeah.
1: it'll be. How? It'll be quick, exact, straight in there.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> yes,
0: what about Jeremy Corbyn? <laughs> <laughs> but that, that, I suppose that's the problem for people, isn't it? They go, Boris Johnson is a kind of horror for most, for a lot of people. And then they say, well, if it's trusting him and Corbyn, then Boris, to some people, becomes more attractive.
1: I don't know about that, um, and, and, and I'll tell you for why, because when, when Jeremy ran the 2017 um, election campaign, he did really well, and he really cut through to people, I think, and there are, there are things that he is capable of doing which other people can't do. When he went to Grenfell and just um, walked into the crowd and um, hugged people and was with people, um, that was, that was authentic, Jeremy Corbyn, and it's really important to see that. Um, and when he got, I mean, in places like York, he got sort of 6,000 people out. Um, he does have an ability to reach people that other politicians don't have, there's no doubt about that. that I mean, that's partly the frustration people had about the EU referendum campaign, but I, I think it's wrong to say that he doesn't have that ability to, 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 to reach people, but also to be contrasted with someone like Boris, because um, you know the personalities couldn't be more different. I mean, do you think
0: whenever it is? But you know, you're going to sit there and watch Jeremy Corbyn try and hold Boris at the moment to account, and you've seen him try to hold Theresa May and David Cameron to account. Do you ever sit there and think, can I just have a go one week? <laughs>
1: <laughs> There's Corbyn... a long queue. Emily's in the queue. <laughs> Rebecca Long <Rebecca> Bailey. <laughs> um, I think we're probably going to stick with women, so it'll be it'll be a while.
0: But do you think Do you think like, it should be like England friendlies, so where you're like, give a few other people a <laughs> call up. Decide, give Starmer a run out. He's, he's handy, Like Stick him up for oh, the 20 minutes. That. So you
1: sort of stick him up. He wouldn't get in the first team, but it's, <laughs> it's only a friendly. It doesn't really matter. No, but then but then well, the problem is, is
0: that the manager um, doesn't want talented players. That's the problem, isn't it, at the moment? Is that it, Well, but that's part of the problem, is, is that if it was merit, then you would absolutely. You'd be, you'd be first name on the team sheet.
1: Well, look, I mean, um, I think...
0: Ben and Starmer up front.
1: <laughs> <laughs> midfield, midfield.
0: Midfield, OK, midfield. So uh, if, if you were a footballer, what sort of, what sort of footballer would you be? Who, who would you liken yourself to?
1: Uh, well, look, I'm, I still play football, so I consider myself a footballer. <laughs> <laughs>
0: okay.
1: Professional. You may, you may disagree if you actually came to watch. <laughs> um, Midfield, on the left of midfield.
0: So, But are you saying, like, are your midfield in like Vieira or Keane? Uh,
1: well, I'd like to think Vieira unless less Keane, but uh, <laughs> as you get older, <laughs> a bit more the Vieira comes out.
0: OK, so sort of strong, international, of course.
2: <laughs> Frank of
0: I'm just trying yeah. to think, does, that, does the way Patrick Vieira f- play football translate to the way you do politics?
1: In the middle of the park? In the middle of the park. On the left, shouting a lot of instructions. (laughs) Slower than it was. (laughs) Feels better in my head afterwards than um, it was on the pitch. But there are are things you can actually learn from football. I I genuinely think this, by the way. Um, Because there are are just, for amateur football at least, there are just basic rules which really matter, which is, as soon as you're on the pitch, nobody gives a damn what you do for a living. And the only rule is don't be an arse. Um, And that's quite a good rule for politics. Don't be an ass
0: so is this, is this is this is this five a side you play or 11 aside
1: uh, five side and eight side
0: how often do you play football
1: every Sunday and sometimes if I can get away with it on a Monday and is this is this grass or is this astro Astro turf yeah hard as nails <laughs> I don't know about that you'd you have to come on board but uh, yeah no I've, I've always done this since I was about 10
0: and who's uh, presumably not the same team you're in <laughs> <laughs>
1: No, no, it's all sorts of people I've picked up along the way. Um, Friends, people I work with, their friends. And what's
0: the team called? People's
1: sons. Well, now we don't have a name. We just knock on a on a Sunday and a Monday. We used to be Homerton Academicals, but that was uh, an 11-a-side team that I played for. East London? Yeah, Homerton,
0: yeah. So is that, are you a kind of Shoreditch kind of guy?
1: No, no, no. She's got quite
0: a cool haircut, so... This
1: is is Kentish Town.
0: (laughs) (laughs) But you I, mean, you, I mean, it sounds strange, but you look amazing for 56.
3: <laughs> but you do, nice like you're, kind of, you're,
0: you're like you're, you're one of the few stylish MPs. You've got a cool haircut. <laughs> are you sort of aware of that? Do you sit there and think, actually, but, I might not be leader of the opposition, but I'm I better, I kind of turn out better no, most. Got, I,
1: I, now you've raised, I, I've got to tell you a, a story about... I guess the barber around the corner, just on the way to Ed Miliband's house, which is how it is in my constituency. Um, and the barbers oh, great, he says, You're you know, you're, you're great, the MP and all that. And he says, You're all gonna be Prime Minister and then he goes, You are Labour, aren't you? <laughs> and I think there's only so much you've really been watching this. But
2: you you
0: you know, I mean I thought you were younger until I checked your Wikipedia page earlier this week. I'd have put you at mid-40s. This is good. So I'm going to come back. Excellent. <laughs> when you're Prime Minister, hopefully. <laughs> um, I'll be in my mid-30s then. But do you feel young in politics? Because you feel, obviously, now that Corbyn's in charge and stuff like that, young is, youth is kind of relative...
2: <laughs> I feel
1: young in the sense I've only been there five minutes Yeah, I mean you know I was only elected in four and a bit years ago um, and so you know whatever you've done before you go into politics however much you think you know when you get there it's a completely different ballgame, and you've just got to learn the ropes and the rules and the rules are all unwritten so there's a lot of learning to do in that and you do that with the group of people you're elected in with and so I was the 2015 um, intake but you know What's happened in my sort of four years has been incredible because, you know, when I was standing to be um, the MP for Open St Pancras, Ed Miliband was leader of our party, David Cameron was Prime Minister, Nick Clegg was Deputy Prime Minister, Obama was President of America. Um, and, 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 the, and, the, and the EU was the... 11th, say Tony Blair
0: and that'll be enough for me.
1: But the EU was the 11th, the 11th most... Um, Uh, important subject to people that wasn't even in the top ten and so somebody shoved about 40 years worth of uh, change into my first four years so I feel young in the sense I'm learning ropes I feel old in the sense that so much has happened in that four years wherever you are in politics. But
0: you I mean it's it's incredible that you've only been there four years because you're, you're such a big national figure particularly in labour politics and particularly in the context of Brexit you're seen really as probably the most prominent opponent of it. I mean, would you ever have thought you'd have that sort of profile?
1: No, no. I thought Ed might just about make me attorney general within the first five years if we got into government. <laughs> but, um, you know, I'm, I'm grounded by, by my kids. We've got a, a boy who's 10 and a girl who's eight. And um, a couple of weeks ago, our eight-year-old girl said, are you going to be in tonight? No, what are you doing, a fundraiser? This was like a slow motion cross-examination. It was always going to be a disaster. What's a, fundraiser, what, a fundraising dinner? Oh, it's people um, come to dinner, go, go pay money to come to a dinner to hear someone speak. Next question, of course. Who's speaking? <laughs> uh, me, why would anybody pay money to you know, <laughs> eat like, it's, it's like, you know when you're getting bold a question and it's blindingly obvious what's coming next. And I couldn't think of an answer. <laughs> He's brutal, isn't he? Straight in there. <laughs> Being held to account at home. Yeah. No, well, um, no, well she, you know, she's really good at it. She says, what, what do you do today, Daddy? More blah, blah, blah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> My God. Yeah, it's, uh, it's pretty, so it's quite hard to sort of keep up any sort of pretense of self-esteem. <laughs> so that's a great level.
0: <laughs> so because, I mean, maybe that's in the genes, is it? The kind of, the, the, kind of, the legal mind...
1: Well, I don't know. I don't know. I think it's because she's the younger of the two and she's just out there to make sure she's never going to be pushover, over, <laughs> which is fine. It's a good thing. So you, were, you,
0: you, you, you studied a lot and you became Director of Public Prosecution. So I remember you prior to your political career, mainly because uh, you took the excellent decision of um, prosecuting Chris Hoon.
1: Ah, yes. <laughs> he wasn't the only um, politician we prosecuted because all of the expenses files came across my desk. Wow. So we had to look at all of those cases um, and some of those that we didn't prosecute who were still in the House of Commons. So um, there's, uh, yeah, an interesting bunch of cases.
0: And there, do you ever see people? Oh, my God, of course. So do you ever see people in Parliament, maybe not even expensive ones, but ones that you'd heard stuff about? I oh,
1: yeah. and uh, so After... Um, uh, Hume and Vicky Price had been prosecuted and um, been detained by Her Majesty. I went to an event, yeah. uh, a, di- a fundraising dinner, where I wasn't speaking, um, and they said, you're sitting there next to Vicky Price. <laughs> it's been an interesting conversation. And what did she say? Did she say you bastard? <sighs> she was fine. I mean, she, I don't know why she didn't just spill the beans from the start, and um, it would have been a lot easier for her if she'd done it and just become a prosecution witness. I don't know why she didn't do it. But have you ever spoken
0: to Chris Hoon after?
1: No, yeah. no, no. Um, so
0: must now you've gone into politics, he must think, yeah, I fucking got you, mate. Yeah, yeah Like, <laughs> that.
1: like yeah. it was an anti-Lib Dem thing. Or yeah. Something. But I mean, in the end, he, what could you do? It's obvious that um, he'd done what he said he hadn't done. Yeah. <laughs> so do you, get, do you ever get MPs coming to you for legal advice?
0: I mean, you know, off the top of my head, Fiona on Asanya. <laughs> <laughs> Does she say, look, I know you know cases like this, what do I need to do to... What's
1: my best (laughs) defence? Not the one you're running. (laughs) (laughs) Do they ever come to you and go, Keir, look? You do get a bit of that. You do get a bit of that. And then also, because we all do advice surgeries on a Friday, which are really important, um, where any constituent can come, first come, first serve, with any issue that they've got and they're really serious and... um, um, very many treacherous cases in there. But quite a lot of people have worked out that I'm a QC and I thought, well, I'll pop along and get a bit of advice on the law. <laughs> Since he says he has a first come, first serve uh, policy, I'll go and see what he has to say about this. But um, the other cases in there are very, very serious.
0: Great. So do you, do you get um, other... Is it always Labour MPs come to you or will, like, the odd Tory or someone else? No,
1: else's? the odd Tory, I, I mean, I, I tend to get across, get on with people across the house um, because um, I don't have the sort of tribal stuff so much as other people do. And also, quite frankly, in the last you know, two, three years, we've had to work across the House to get any of the victories we've had on Brexit. And so, um, you know, and Dominic, someone like Dominic Grieve, he was Attorney General when I was yes. Director of Public Prosecution. So um, I actually worked with Dominic um, in that capacity before I even got to the House of Commons. So it's been, the whole meaningful vote thing was something which he and I worked very hard on um, together. So, yeah.
0: So can you use that, can you use your legal expertise as currency then in in Parliament, can you say, look, I know you're going to vote for the uh, for the deal, but I know you have a non-disclosure agreement. I can give you <laughs> high-end legal <laughs> advice. I mean, you could. I mean, legally, you'd be Boris would need you.
1: Yeah, I mean, <laughs> um, it is. It's extraordinary. I mean, it, the, the change from law to politics and how you might use law in politics is, is, is incredible because. You know, as a lawyer, um, you, there are rules about how you present a case. You have to put the evidence before the court. Um, and then an independent judge or jury makes a decision. Um, and politics has none of that. <laughs> so it takes a bit of a, a, a getting used to it. But before you leave the DPP thing, there is one thing, I just, just, just for a laugh, because it was so funny. Um, within about a year of becoming DPP... Um, a man put, called Paul Bint started impersonating me um, and uh, started answering lonely um, hearts columns in the Sunday <laughs> Times as Keir Starmer, the DPP. This is a long—I won't tell the whole story because it, it is very funny and very long. Um, and in that capacity, he started an affair with two women, saying, "I'm Keir Starmer, I'm the DPP. I know Tony Blair it was one of his chat-up lines." Um are right, we'll you sitting there? And, and these, these two women sort of fell in love with him. Um, but, but Paul didn't have a lot of money, um, but thought, you know, I know what makes a relationship work. You have to give jewellery. So he hit upon the idea of take, nicking the jewellery of one of them um, and giving it to the other, <laughs> and vice versa. <laughs> so, so these two women swapped their jewellery sets, oh unbeknownst God. to them um and um eventually he did all sorts of other things he took long taxi rides in my name <laughs> he, he tried to buy a house in buckinghamshire for three million quid in my name and then a piece of art um for eighty thousand quid in my name which is when i first got to know him because the art um uh, uh, dealer phoned up cps headquarters to see whether i was going to complete on the deal eventually he was arrested and prosecuted um etc but of course as the crown prosecution service had to take the decision whether to prosecute him (laughs) so the team said to me well since you're the victim you can't be involved i said fine just tell me the answer to three questions is he pleading not guilty is his defense that he is keir starmer the (laughs) dvd and where do i stand if the jury acquit him (laughs) (laughs) Oh my. And you should yes. never wish for a conviction. You really shouldn't, because it's a, it's a genuinely independent um, post. Yeah. But I was quite relieved when, in the end, the jury said, you're not kissed, i a bad luck. <laughs> so have, have either of the women ever got in touch with you and said... And this is a, we go, no, they haven't. But, of course, at trial, they had to give evidence. And um, they were asked, uh, you know, when, when you saw Paul Bint, did you not think you know, this doesn't look anything like Keir Starmer. Yeah. And one of them said, well, I had my suspicions, but everybody can have a bad day. <laughs>
0: <laughs>
2: oh, my God. Yeah, it's... Um,
1: that it, was, been, it was an odd one, it was an odd have one. That
0: must been so stressful, especially as you were impersonating
1: Dominic Grieve at the time. <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it was quite something, yeah.
0: Does that, I mean, in that, did, when you're having it's such a public role, it's such an important role, the director of public prosecutions, do, at what point in that tenure did you start harbouring political ambitions?
1: Um, for me, I mean, I, I joined the Labour Party when I was a teenager, so long history in the Labour Party, and then obviously did a lot of work on international human rights, where um, across the world we're fighting things like the death penalty and, and free speech in other countries, um, and actually then worked with the police board in Northern Ireland on implementing some of the Good Friday Agreement, which was um, an incredible period. Oh,
0: so that's when you first met Jeremy Corbyn. But
1: <laughs> 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 so that, that, that was incredible. I mean, you know, now, now we're really worried about the Good Friday Agreement. That, that was an incredible period because we were, over five years, I was there, trying to transform the RUC, the Royal Ulster Constabulary, into the police service of Northern Ireland. Um, massive change and in particular to get Catholics into the police service because no Catholics would join the RUC for obvious reasons. And that meant getting Sinn Féin onto the policing board. So it was a real eye-opener to how you could work with certain institutions on Good Friday Agreement, et cetera, to make some real change. And that, that made me want to work nationally, if you like. And then um, the thing that really did it for me was the cuts and austerity and taking the money out of public services because I... You know, I could accept that you could take five percent out of certain public services, but when it got to twenty, twenty-five, thirty, even forty percent, you can't run public services on cuts of forty percent. It's blindingly obvious, and I genuinely thought and do think that um, the coalition government um, and every government since 2010 with austerity is ripping up um, what I consider to be a really important part of the post-war settlement in terms of welfare public services, and just the way that we treat each other in society, supporting people who need support and providing opportunities to people. I mean, it sounds all, you know, apple and motherhood and apple pie, but it's really, really, really important to me. And so that, that's what persuaded me. The only way in the end to deal with this is to go into politics and change the world and get those public services sorted out, and then I got Brexit. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so do you, were, you, were you a radical young man when you first joined the party? Were you, did you have a beard? We used
1: to... <laughs> Is that the definition?
0: Well, sort of, isn't it? I mean, it's, Look, it I, was, goes, in the, I was
1: in the East Surrey Young Socialists uh, with three others. <laughs> <laughs> Jeremy John <Dyer. laughs> it, it wasn't, it wasn't uh, it, we were very radical. We weren't very big. Um, uh, and then I went to Leeds University where it got a bit more serious and sort of frontline stuff. But uh, yeah, East Surrey Young Socialists. It's got a bit bigger now, but it wasn't. I mean, we all had various executive positions because <laughs> there were only four of them. <laughs> But have you been, as, as so many Labour politicians
0: have, on a journey? Did you start out as a Marxist and then become a Social Democrat, or have you always been around the same area?
1: No, I, I mean, I started, um, I would say, on the left of the party, as, as I think most people do. Um, and in, I was really struck with the... And got into politics at the time, the sort of social movement stuff, and the the the, the struggle Labour was having of embracing not just the sort of traditional working class trade union base, but also, um, you know, equality across sexism, across homophobia, across different strands of equality, Um, you know, whatever that strand was, and and bringing it together, whether it's green, disabled people, um, and that struggle to make the Labour Party the sort of party of people who um, were fighting for equality, as well as just a sort of Um, a class-based, a very important class-based organisation. So I was in the middle of that, and I I thought that was really exciting, I thought it was really important, and I thought that um, equality and dignity were at the heart of all that, and that's what um, the Labour Party needed to be if it was going to be a serious political player in the sort of, um, you know, then the 80s and into the 90s, and certainly into the 21st century now. So that's where I was. uh, You know, I would say on the radical left there, I mean, other people would judge for themselves. Um, And, but even now, I mean, you know... I genuinely believe that um, we need to be more radical than we are in terms of the transformation of our country. I think if if the referendums taught us anything, it ought to be that millions of people who voted in particular to leave were voting because they were telling us the political and economic system isn't working for them. Um, And they're right about that. I mean, without going to uh, get any report on inequality that's been published in the last five years. And they all tell you the same thing, which is equality in every Way is getting worse, not better, and, and that's not just wealth and income, but you know, health, regional inequality, inequality of influence over politicians like me and others. It's getting worse and worse and worse. And in I'm hoping St Pancras is my constituency, which is basically most of Camden. Um, the life expectancy difference between Primrose Hill, um, which is obviously um, very well off. Um, and Somerstown, which sits between Euston and Kings Cross, which is very deprived, is 10 years. Can you believe that? 10 years. I, I could, you know, honestly, I couldn't believe it when I uncovered that. I expected that kind of life expectancy difference to be across a continent, yes, not within a constituency. Um, and that's got to change. And actually, that's quite a unifying thing, because I think I obviously campaigned and voted to remain. But I've not met many people who voted to remain who are not up for some pretty fundamental change to um, that sort of
3: power and wealth that's in the wrong place. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B, and advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either.
0: So, given that, that Brexit is the is the biggest threat to being able to invest in public service and all the rest of it, um, take us into the shadow cabinet then, and <laughs> and, and, that, and, and that that process of I, I think one of the great things you've been able to do is incrementally, it seems to me, get Corbyn to a more pro Remain stance of some sort. It feels like you've been the number one pressure on on dragging him. Is that, would that be accurate? Uh,
1: there's an element of that. Um, I mean, we've certainly changed. I mean, we have we have shifted and moved our position and that's been hard work at times. Frustrating as, you know, sometimes I've felt that I should sort of build a brick wall in my room to hit my head against so I don't have to go outside so often to do it. Um, but um, yeah, you know. Bringing bringing the party to what I consider to be a better position has been um, a really important thing over the last two years. And we we moved a long way. Um, We could go a bit further. Yeah. Um, But uh, we've moved a long way.
0: But how much of your job really is. Because you've got a dual role, uh, and I may be wrong, but it seems to me that you're there to hold the government to account on what happens in Brexit. But you also seem to be there to kind of present Labour's position in a more coherent way. Perhaps than others could, and also to at least provide some remain f- scent or flavour that Labour's front bench would otherwise miss.
1: Yeah, I mean, I let me just take this one head on because it is it is serious and it is really important because, um, yeah, it's a journey. journey the, the, the word that's so overused, um, but for me, I mean, I. When I was DPP, I was the UK representative in Eurojust. So I worked within an EU agency. When I was doing international human rights work, I was doing it with the EU across the world. Um, and um, I genuinely believe in collaboration and cooperation, whether EU partners, I think it's a very good thing to deal with threats and actually take opportunities. So I was very um, keen that we won in 2016 and pretty devastated when we didn't. Um, and that was difficult. I mean, our kids are young. And the day after the referendum, I spent, before they went to school, a bit of time with my young kids and just thought, what kind of world are you gonna grow up in? And um, I was really worried about tolerance and looking inwards. But I felt that um, we had to accept the result. We'd, we'd voted to have a referendum. We couldn't, just because we got the wrong result, say we don't accept it. Um, and that meant that we had to trigger Article 50 and let the Prime Minister do the negotiations. Now, we, there was a lot, of, a lot of people disagree with that. Uh, but I genuinely think that was the right thing to do. Um, But equally, it was right for us to say, um, when you come back in two years, we're gonna judge what you come back with by these six tests which I set out, sort of taking a leaf out of Gordon Brown's book in terms of um, tests. Prime Minister came back with a deal that doesn't get anywhere near those tests. It's been voted down three times. Um, We then went into cross-party talks with the government, Um, they failed, um, mainly because we took the view the government couldn't deliver on it, and frankly because you could never lock it against someone like Boris Johnson coming in. Um, And, you know, I have no um, problem now with the idea that in those circumstances, particularly when you look at EU results, the only safe and right and proper thing to do now is to say that whatever the outcome is, whatever deal the next Prime Minister manages to negotiate, if, if he does, or no deal you've got to put this back to the public to see whether they consent to us leaving on those terms and give them the option of remaining if they don't so consent. I think that's, it's a long explanation, but it's a genuine reflection on where I think we are, which is why I don't have any hesitation in saying that um, at this stage it's perfectly justifiable and right to say this has got to go back to the public so that they can sign it off or not according to what they now think of the situation that we face. And it's not a judgment on what people may have voted three years ago, either way. It's just, um, there's not a deal that's going through that's any good, and we've got to confront the situation that we're in front of now. That's, that's where we've got to, some of that journey we could have done a bit more quickly, um, in my view, but it, it is actually, I think, um, the right position to, for us to get to.
0: But it's also the mood music, isn't it? Jeremy Corbyn doesn't want to say the words. Um, Do you talk to him often? Do you say, to Jeremy, look, it's not only is it it, Labour's uh, ideological um, position, but it is a a Mm. sort of moral duty, or indeed, in terms of Labour's rating in the polls, politically expedient to be explicitly remain?
1: Yeah, I do. Or second vote? I mean, you know, I talk to Jeremy all the time. I actually personally get on very well with Jeremy. There's no um, issue between us at all, and we have um, pretty frank exchanges. I mean, my position is... um, that you know, in a changing world, particularly with the geopolitics going on with um, Trump and Russia and China, um, Europe Europe is where we are geographically, but it's also where we are in terms of history and values. I mean, if you know, the, the world is 200 countries, but there are only four or five real sort of power bases or magnets, spheres of influence, and they're America, China, Russia, um, Asia, arguably, and Europe. And which one, which sphere of influence do we belong to? we belong to Europe. That's where our shared values are. Um, and you know, whether it's threats or whether it's opportunities, collaboration and cooperation, whether EU partners are really important. But the other thing that really, really strikes me and, that, and I think does strike Jeremy more than people appreciate is our socialist and democratic sister parties and politicians across Europe are desperate for us to be with them in the struggle that they are going through, which politically is not that different from ours Mm -hmm. because populism, nationalism, um, a sort of right-wing ideology has taken hold in most European countries to different degrees. Um, And they're desperate for us to be on the international stage fighting with them. So it's not just electorally, would it be better or worse? It is in principle um, where as international socialists and Democrats, we should be placed, it seems to me. And that, you know, that's where I think it needs to come from. But it needs, it needs to be done with confidence and on the front foot. Um, it can't be done on the back foot, it seems to me. So when you say this to Jeremy, what does he say? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, on the international stuff, I mean, he, he is a big internationalist, um, but... Um, well, with Iran and Russia. Uh, the, more, the more... I mean, Jeremy's done a lot of work with the party of, of, of European socialists, and so um, he does get all that bit, but um, we, do, we do have conversations about it, and I do encourage him that we could move nice and quickly and um, determinedly on this. And we're nearly there. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so on the six tests, did you say to him... I think we should set these six tests, and I'm going to write them. And did he say, fine, get on with it? Did he say to you, can you come up with six tests?
1: How did that work? No, it's, it was, it was uh, my idea, and we wrote them. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, um, and Jeremy was very comfortable with them. They were actually all taken from things the government said it was going to achieve. They weren't sort of plucked out of the air. Um, luckily, David Davis was the um, Brexit secretary at the time, so it's quite easy to come up with... Um, <laughs> Uh, things that they'd said. Um, and uh, you know, particularly things like the exact same benefits of being in the customs union, the single market. That was his, um, uh, that was his government. But I mean, he was, I mean, he was the first, I've had three Brexit secretaries, he was the first of them. Um, and he's, he sort of take me, he'd take me aside and say, well, no, the thing is, Keir, um, it's a big mistake to know any detail. Have <laughs> uh, you, oh, you yeah, get bogged down in all of that. Um, you know, I think it's, you know, it's big picture stuff. You know, what you've got to remember is, seriously, the German car industry is so dependent on the UK that in the end, the EU will crack and crumble under our pressure and give us whatever we want. My God. <laughs> um, and, and so it didn't prove to be. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so in the cross-party talks then, because that was fascinating to watch because you thought, surely court, no matter how good the offer is, surely Jeremy Corbyn's not gonna go down in history as the Labour leader that basically props up Theresa May and gets this Tory Brexit through. In,
1: in what spirit were you engaging in those talks? Oh, um, in earnest. I mean, I, I, joking apart, I don't think anybody should underestimate the, the pressure we all feel under to break the impasse. Yeah. Being in Parliament, day in, day out, Um, obviously getting nothing done, arguing about a deal, voting it down, and then arguing about it again, then voting it down again. Um, And everybody looking in saying, you know, um, what a mess. Um, That's what everybody says all the time. There is a genuine, you know, friend or foe, they say, um, you know, what a mess. The pressure I think we all felt, including myself, to break the impasse was pretty huge. I mean, I was never sure about the cross-party talks because... Um, the first I knew we were going into them was when the Prime Minister announced it on telly. Um, and I thought, had this been thought through, she'd have probably said to somebody like David Liddington a few days before, well, can you give Kira a ring on a sort of confidential basis and see whether Labour all, you know, are up for this? And then immediately she finished speaking on that night. I got phone calls from um, uh, Michel Barnier's team saying did you know about this, (laughs) Kia? Which obviously revealed to me that they didn't know anything about it either. But we did go into it, you know, in the hope that we might break the impasse. But in the first meeting we had, I said to Theresa May, um, whatever you think of going back to the public, a confirmatory referendum, if you want a stable majority, you're going to have to embrace it because you're not getting a majority now of Labour MPs on board if you don't have... Um, uh, an ability to go back to the public on this. Um, And she simply said, I'll I'll focus on the substance for now. (laughs) And that was it. But you know, so we we were trying to find a way through. I mean, there there was a way through if she could have held the numbers, which is to say, um, put her deal to a confirmatory vote, because then you don't need to argue about whether the deal is technically absolutely what everybody would agree on, which is almost impossible. Because people could say, well, it's not imperfect. I myself don't particularly like it. But since it's subject to a lock of a confirmatory vote, Um, at least we can go forward. I mean, it was a very clever, um, the the Peter Carl, Phil Wilson um, Mm. thing was actually a clever way to break the impasse. Um, But the Prime Minister never engaged in that and and probably could never have delivered on that. And that that would have broken the impasse because then you could go to the country and say, well, you can either have this deal that's been negotiated um, or you can remain. And in those cross-party talks then,
0: so there's three or four of you from either side, like, is there small talk at the
1: start? Well, it's, there, there is. It's, it's really embarrassing. Um, it's like sort of meeting your partner's parents. <laughs> uh, I mean, and there are different characters around the table. I mean, David Liddington, I genuinely like and respect, mm. and I think he's respected across the country, uh, across Parliament. You know, Michael Gove not so much, <laughs> um, and, then, and then you got the tensions between them because we had um, Stephen Barclay um, in there and Greg Clark and Philip Hammond, and so it, to see them on the other side of the table was interesting, to see their different faces when you know, David Liddington might be leaning into a position that we wanted, but the, the most telling thing was the first time we went, had these really fantastic sandwiches. It was a sort of a complete spread. Um, and then the next time, the sort of lesser-grade sandwiches. <laughs> Eventually, the sandwiches were removed. <laughs> by the time we got to the last meeting, there was sort of water and a the sort of digestive biscuit. <laughs> so you, you got the sense this wasn't heading in the right direction.
0: They should have given you beer.
1: Yeah, beer and sandwiches.
0: Yeah, some wine or something like that. Yeah. Just get the, you know, bit of whiskey. Just get it... Get yeah. tongues wagging a bit, loosen people up. <laughs>
1: yeah yeah. so how
0: long would those discussions last uh, in in, per session four or five hours
1: long long sessions
0: and people i mean everyone has a different responsibility but before you go in do you go right uh you're going to take notes you've got to do this you've got to do that and how if that does happen how um how long until that sort of breaks down and people do start talking on things they said they weren't going to talk about
1: um well you you do go in with a a plan, hopefully, of who's going to say what, but it does break down pretty quickly because um, different points come out across the table. The, big, the biggest issue was genuinely how, you know, by the time the Prime Minister got round to picking up the phone to saying, will you go into cross-party talks, she'd already said she was stepping down. Mm. And that's a massive problem because um, even if we could have done one a deal with her, the test was how on earth are you going to bind the person who's going to take your place in a matter of weeks and that was impossible to answer um, and the tragic, the, the genuine tragedy is that that didn't happen two years earlier it, you know tr- my, amongst the big criticism of Theresa May I mean she got the red lines completely wrong but she didn't she didn't appreciate that she was never going to get a deal through her own party because they have been arguing about Europe for 40 years um, and that she was going to need to involve us and therefore that um, that sort of reaching out needed to happen. I thought it was gonna happen, it was quite a funny story after the 2017 election because um, obviously May had lost her majority and in the immediate days afterwards when we we're thinking what's gonna happen, um, I was at home with my wife and then looked at my phone, there was a missed call from David Davis um, and she said, that's them phoning about cross-party working on this. Um, in the end, it wasn't. It was David telling me more about BMWs and how, <laughs> in the end, the Germans would crack. <laughs> 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 and it'll, all be, it'll be all right. But, but that was the point. I mean, seriously. Yes. To open cross-party talks after, after the 29th of March It's not at the 11th hour. It was after midnight. And when you've already done the deal, which can't be changed very much, um, was a tragic misjudgment. So...
0: Are you, bit, are you able in those talks to be really frank with each other? With, with our own side? Well, <laughs> Not so yeah, well, yeah, either side. Can you say to them, you know this is nonsense?
1: At times, yeah. Yeah, it was, it was quite frank in places.
0: And would, would you pick them off against each other and would they contradict
1: each other? Well, themselves? we didn't have to because they're picking each other off um, most <laughs> of the time. So, you know... David Liddon could say something, and then Julian Smith, the chief whip, was sort of pull a face. (laughs) We haven't got the numbers for that. Um, So there was a bit of that going on across the the table. But they they were genuinely um, in good faith in an attempt to move things forward.
0: And would you ever have to kind of um, assert yourself with your own team? Would, Would people ever say stuff that maybe it wasn't policy or you weren't comfortable with it, you'd then have, maybe have to clarify
1: politely. Sort of, your toes are curling under the, under the desk. Yeah. <laughs> shall I just take it? Um, most of the time it was right. But, <laughs> but on those
0: occasions, when it wasn't, how do you handle that then? How do you handle sitting in a negotiation, knowing that what, someone on your own side is saying something that maybe they're overstepping the mark or they're saying something that's not accurate? How, how do you tactfully... Handle dying Abbott in a situation like that. <laughs> <laughs>
2: I uh,
1: gently steering the, the ship back on course.
2: There's
1: <laughs> been a large part of I mean, the one thing I've had to learn a lot in the last four years is patience and more patience. Um, and then a bit more patience as we as we steer this one through.
0: In terms of your relationship with your opposite number, then it's always it's always nice to know that people get on. As you say you've been through three Brexit etc it sounds like David Davis, if nothing else, was a kind of good laugh.
1: Yeah, it, 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 it was a good laugh, and um, and and was capable of laughing at himself. And so, um, just before he actually resigned, I said to him at one of our question sessions in Parliament, I said, "I said I've been totting up. Um, I think you've threatened to resign more times than you've met Michelle Barnier." <laughs> and he just laughed it off. It was perfectly true. Um, but um, then we got Dominic Raab, and. My takeaway on Dominic was an absolute inability to laugh at himself. Mm. And, and, um, and you've got to be able to laugh at yourself, I think, in any walk of life, but particularly if you're the Brexit secretary.
2: Because
1: <laughs> 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 uh, you know, lots of things are likely to go very wrong. <laughs> and actually laughing at yourself is a really important. And, you know, he was... Because David, I mean, there's that. Famous, I don't know whether you saw that picture of David Davis when he arrived for the first session of the negotiations. Yeah. You have Michel Barnier and his team with sort of lever arch files all marked up, um, and there's David with this uh, sort of glasses case, <laughs> um, and and this theory that it's better if you don't know the detail. Um, and then you had Dominic Raab, who was determined to show that he was the complete opposite of that. And you know, he was the he was the lawyer. He knew all the detail. He was going to be in Brussels um, the whole time, and. Um, and so he was, uh, mainly causing havoc because um, Ollie Robbins couldn't get on with the job of negotiating. And, it, and he's, I'm all over the detail, I know every bit of the detail. You know, I'm Dominic Raab, I'm a lawyer, you know, here it is. Um, and and the, the, the fatal flaw was when he came back and read what he'd negotiated, and then resigned. <laughs> didn't agree with it. <laughs> um, and that was the end of him. And then we got Steve um, Barclay, who's the current Brexit Secretary, whose claim to fame so far. Um, was when we were doing, back in March, seems like a long time ago now, we were pushing motions to extend Article 50. And the motion before the House was to extend Article 50, and the Prime Minister was supporting it. And he stood at the dispatch box and said, I commend the motion to the House, which is meant to mean go and vote for it, for an extension of Article 50. Then he went into the booth to vote against it. (laughs) But the one thing I'll say about Steve Barclay in seriousness, and about Julian Smith, the Conservative Chief Whip, is that um, in the middle of those um, moments, in November, December, when it was very tense, uh, my dad was very ill and then died, um, which obviously is difficult for anyone, but it's difficult when you're in that position. Both Stephen and Julian Smith wrote me on the day, very personal letters about that, not just condolences, but, um, you know, about what had happened when their father had died and things like that and that was a real moment so whatever I might do in sort of taking the mickey out of um, Steve and others actually sometimes in there there's a real human being and that really really matters
0: it's nice to remember that isn't it to, to you know however the harsh these divisions are I saw a lovely photo on Twitter earlier of uh, you know the
1: stop Brexit guy Steve stop Brexit a <laughs>
0: picture of him Steve Baker and Marc Francois went to wish him happy birthday. Yeah, (laughs) they've had a photo taken together. I almost cried looking at that. Yeah, it's uh, Mark Francois, all right.
1: (laughs) Well, I won't go that far. Uh, (laughs) uh, Yeah, but that was a very strange picture. It just reassures you a bit, doesn't
0: it? Because I think sometimes the tone that politicians take rubs off on the public a bit. Yeah, and actually forget that she. A lot of politicians do have a healthy relationship with each other. And even though there are the harsh contentions, behind the scenes, there is a, a level of diplomacy, even in Brexit, even in the Labour Party.
1: Yeah, it depends who it is. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but by and large, those relationships are better than you might think. And um, quite a lot of the time, the only way you're going to get things done is if, you, if you work in that collaborative way. So it does pay off.
0: I often ask people who their who they're, you know who their favourite people are on the opposite benches. But given the state of the Labour Party, it's probably more probably more provocative to ask you who on your own side um, <laughs> <laughs> you like the most. But who are, who are the Tories that you can kind of get on with?
1: Um, Dominic Grieve I know really well. Get on with him. Tom Tugendhat and I came in um, together, so I know him pretty well. Um, and a lot of them, um, particularly the twenty fifteen intake. I get on with very well. Um, partly because, as I say, when you come into politics, you think you're this, that and the other, but actually you know nothing um, and you do have to learn the ropes together. And partly that 2015 intake on both sides and all sides are bound together tragically um, because one of our intake, Joe Cox, didn't make it. Mm. Um, and all, you know, there's something about the group that you're elected with. Um, and obviously on our side, we're very close to Joe. Um, but Tories as well, because, you know, she reached out across the party um, more than anyone probably in our intake. And so there is, there's a, there is actually a bond in that 2015 intake, which is, is arguably deeper than some of the other intakes, just because of that. Um, and I think that's real.
0: I wonder what that means for the future then, whether as an intake you're more likely to, I mean, obviously any intake of MPs, some of them are going to go on to great things, but I wonder if that... I wonder if there'll be documentaries made about the class of
1: 2015. I don't know. I, I genuinely don't know. Um, and, 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 and it may well be if you get someone else into interview, they'll tell you the class of 2010 or 2017 has got the same yeah. characteristics. And it may be that we all just see it because that's the particular group we came in with. But there is something about learning the ropes together. Um, and then there is something about when something like Joe Cox happens, which is pretty profound for everybody that does bind people together in a way that um, is obvious, it seems to me. Mm.
0: So in terms of your own side then, I mean, one of the the fascinating things about, you know, the reports we hear from the PLP and the Shadow Cabinet is that Corbyn may be kind of slow to react, but that John Macdonald is far more nimble, it seems, in saying what Labour remainers want to hear. And he's he's often, on, on the media outlets, being far more clear than Jeremy Corbyn is. I mean, is... McDonald just perhaps a, a better politician and, and with better instincts, or and if both could be true. Is he on manoeuvres? <laughs> uh,
1: the two can go together. Um, the I mean, I I actually think if, John is a really good communicator, and I think he's some of the stuff he's doing on the economy is really important, and he's doing a lot of work on it, and I think that's really good. Um, and I my. Senses that lots of people, when they hear John, think this guy's talking a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. I think John also um, was struck by the fact that in 2017, we nearly won. You know, we started that election with everybody with a head in their hands. And then we nearly won. And um, for John, that, uh, I think, made him absolutely focus on being completely pragmatic about how we win next time. I think more than anybody else, he has focused on, we've got to win, we've got to change things. And, um, and that inevitably brings a degree of pragmatism with it um, in the way that um, he goes about the politics. I think it's a good thing, by the way. Um, but um, it is really interesting. Um, I think when people listen to John on the radio or on the telly, they find themselves agreeing with him more than they're disagreeing with him.
0: Yeah. And then they find out who he is, and they go...
1: Oh. <laughs> <laughs> there is that. I hear him sometimes Think, God, who's
0: this? And you go, oh, John McDonald. But he, he, he's got skills, there's no doubt. Yeah. I mean, what he shares, and what Tom Watson is another Labour figure who's kind of out there. Um, what they both share is they both start to talk a lot quieter than they used to.
1: Yeah. I'm not sure what that's all about. Tom, in particular. I could Very... ba- when he's
0: on telly, I can barely... Labour is a Remain party.
1: <laughs> and I think we've got to be very clear with
0: people that we do support... Yeah, talk up, Tom, for fuck's sakes. Brexit, mate. A... And, and John McDonnell obviously used to scream and shout, talk through gritter teeth, I look.
1: Yeah, But yeah. It's bloody
0: serious, actually, what the Tories... They're both men sound like they're trying to control themselves because if they don't, they will scream their heads off.
1: Yeah, that's a really good option. I'm going I'm to ask them both about that now. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean, you're absolutely right. And particularly Tom, who does... Um, very, very soft voice now.
0: Because that's, that's someone trying to contain themselves, isn't it? That's like a gangster in a film.
1: <laughs> I'm talk a really, I'm a really nice stuff. guy.
0: <laughs> yeah, that because they're trying to not nothing to fear
1: here?
0: I mean, do you, do you have anything to do with Tom Watson's Future Britain Group, or
1: is that what it's called? Not directly with that group, no. But I've talked to Tom and everybody across the party. And have you I like, like. I mean, I genuinely try to talk to everybody across the party because in the end. <laughs> Um, part of my job is to try to get everybody into the same lobby at the same time when we vote, which is the devil's own job. <laughs> so most, most, a anyway, good part of my job is sort of counselling people and, and cajoling people. And do um, have you ever been tapped up by the Lib Dems or Change?
0: Did they say, look here, come on, you're a sensible guy?
1: Nope. And I wouldn't go. Absolutely wouldn't go. And Change, i not <laughs> not a particularly good advert for um, what happens if you do, you know, I, I was genuinely worried when um, they set up as to whether any more Labour MPs would go, which I did think would be really bad for, for the Labour Party for very obvious reasons, but they screwed it up so badly that I think the general feeling in Labour is it's gold it's out there and it doesn't look too good. Yeah, or join the Lib Dems. Or, well, uh, yes, Chuck has been through, I think, well, <laughs> Labour, Change UK, Independent and Lib Dems now yeah. in Six months, which is interesting.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, you know, sometimes it's like that. You know, I'm like that sometimes with a pair of jeans. Like, I, don't really fit.
1: Oh, I know, but there is, there, 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 is, there is an argument, isn't there? There's a, that when someone swaps parties, there is always this argument well, shouldn't you stand for a by election? Yeah. <laughs> I think you've been through four changes in six months. There might be a case for saying, for heaven's sake, you might want to check with those people that <laughs> voted for you, whether they're voting for Labour, for change, for independent or Lib Dem. You know.
0: But, do, I mean, is there anything that would make you leave the Labour Party? No. Nothing at all? So even with... So Chris Williamson's had his suspension lifted. He's back. I saw that. Yeah. That really worries people. Yeah. I does does that. that... The anti-Semitism stuff, the fact that it's still not being taken seriously, does that not make you think, actually, I'm going to help put a guy into Downing Street
1: who might be anti-Semitic? No, it just makes me more determined that we're going to do something about it. Um, you, you, I, I Genuinely, I mean, the Labour Party is a massive um, movement You know, obviously, Labour Party, trade union movement, and all those movements I was talking about, it's achieved great things. And I don't think there's going to be a political force like it for a very long time. And therefore, abandoning the Labour Party is to abandon um, wanting that progressive change. There are challenges, of course there are. I mean, on anti-Semitism, we've just got to redouble our efforts the whole time. You know, you don't walk away from those things. Um, But I strongly think you've got to stay in and fight it and not leave Um, And that's the argument I have to have with members who are telling me the whole time that they want to leave the Labour Party in my own constituency, which is stay in and fight. Don't leave. But the thing is, Chris Williamson, it seems the way it was done, you know, it's this sort of three-member
0: NEC panel, it wasn't the the usual constitution of, of these things. It does feel like this is Jeremy's will being enacted, that if he really didn't want Chris Williamson to be an MP, just as Alistair Campbell could be immediately expelled... if if Corbyn said to the NEC, I don't want Williamson about, they'd have enacted that.
1: Well, I actually think that'd be wrong. I mean, I I think that you should have an independent panel and you shouldn't have the leader of the Labour Party interfering in it with whoever they are. It should be an independent panel. So I don't think... I know there have been some leaked emails um, about this, but I genuinely don't think the leader of the Labour Party should be involved. If you're going to have an independent process, have an independent Mm. process. That process needs to work more quickly. But my biggest concern about... Um, Chris Williamson and the other cases like it is um, the denial of anti-Semitism is a massive part of the problem mm. it, and, and you know it, th- there's the obvious case of anti-Semitism then there's a group of people say we haven't got a problem and that, that, is, that is a massive part of the problem and, and, and you know and, it, and it, it, it comes from a place where people are saying well um, they're making it up aren't they And as soon as you go to that place, you realise just what that is full of. Um, And so, you know, both, you know, in my own um, constituency and across the country, I've railed against those uh, as much against those that deny we've got a problem as those that are obviously, obviously anti-Semitic.
0: Is there not a danger then that even if the leadership aren't explicit in what they want, that the NEC, which is as pro-Corbyn as it's ever going to be, and is absolutely in the favour of the leadership more than any time, probably in its history, that they would act according to what they think Jeremy's wishes would be?
1: I hope not. I hope not. But, um, you know, let's face facts, we're being investigated by the Equalities and Human Rights Commission for anti Semitism. This is a low moment. Um, You know, as a human rights lawyer, I championed the Equalities and Human Rights Commission. I championed the fact that they should be able to interview uh, witnesses that they should be able to subpoena documents because I wanted them to get to the heart of um, unlawful discrimination and lack of equality, and I thought they needed those powers. It didn't dawn on me for one second that those would be being used against the Labour Party. Um, And and, we've got a choice in this. We either reluctantly accept that they're investigating us and begrudgingly um, comply, or we say, and this is what we should do, look, we've been trying to get these processes right. We've obviously not succeeded. We'll open the books, come in, please look at everything and help us now with strong recommendations that we can implement. And we should do the same. You know, in other words, let's get them in to help us with this, um, not begrudge um, the fact that they're investigating us. But um, you know, it is a low moment when the Accords and Human Rights Commission are investigating the Labour Party.
0: I mean, the, the only other party they'd investigate was the BNP. Yeah. And not even to this extent. Yeah. Um, so, interesting times ahead. I but
1: mean, that, that's why our response really matters. You know, if we say, look, we, we, whatever we try to do, we haven't got this right. Um, we've tried to change processes, and we have Jenny Formby's changed the processes, tried to um, streamline things get cases moving more quickly, keep a better account of what cases there are. All that change has happened, but still we've got problems. Say to the Accordation and the commission, you Commission, know, here's the data, here's the people, interview who you like, look at what documents you want, have a conversation with us, and tell us, um, if you can, where you see things going wrong so that we can do something about it. I-, I mean,
0: arrest people? I mean, you know, if the law's been broken, then that would involve people being arrested,
1: perhaps. Well... I, I, I think actually this is about the internal disciplinary process. If there's any question of the law being broken, then the, the police have to look at that, which is a completely different matter. This is, this is about how a party deals with upholding its own laws and uh, the internal processes. And, and that is something where the Equalities and Human Rights Commission ought to be able to help us.
0: Okay, uh, right, let's take some questions from the audience. You have a roving mic. If you indicate clearly, we'll get a microphone to you if you let us know uh, your name. And if you can ask some one-sentence questions and one-sentence answers, I'll take the gentleman bang in the middle there. Just wait for the microphone to come. Here we go.
1: Thank you, thank you. Um, So as a Remainer voter, I find it very disingenuous that the Labour Party would stick to the six tests of... uh, whether they agree to to a Brexit or not, simply because the six tests don't stand up. And I'm surprised that you actually hold out that they do. The Singles Customs Union cannot and will not be accepted by the EU when you are not in the EU, and that seems to be a direct contradiction. Yet you seem to be very much uh, holding your six tests. I just find it ridiculous. I don't agree with you. I totally don't agree with you. I've I've talked it through with Michel Barnier. Um, And I said to him directly, um, as a um, country that has left um, the EU, we can't be in the customs union, obviously, because in the customs union, um, the council um, sets the mandate for the commission to do trade negotiations and parliament then votes on it. So if you're not a member, you can't be in the customs union. But I said, we want to be in a customs union that has exactly the same benefits, and can we talk with you about what that would look like for a third party, a third country that wants to be in a customs union with the um, EU, so an EU-UK customs union, delivering the same benefits? Is that a discussion we can have? And he said, yes. And we need to talk about what, talk about what the governance arrangements would be, um, how you'd influence trade policy, etc. So I, dis- I, I don't agree with the argument that it's impossible to achieve this with the political will to do it. And I say that as someone who's actually spoken directly across the table with Michelle Barney about whether that would be negotiable. He's already refused it. No, he hasn't. He's told me that that's negotiable, to my face.
0: <laughs>
2: there you I, go. I
1: mean, I've had no, no end of meetings with him and his team. Um, and, and, I, and, to, and to be honest, I would never have surfaced it as a position for the Labour Party if I didn't think it was negotiable. I felt it very, I felt very strongly that I should raise it with Michel Barnier first to to get clearance from him and his team that that is something the EU would um, negotiate if that was the clear policy objective of the UK. And he said to me, yes, it's not without, without, I'm not gonna pretend as Liam Fox did that it would be the easiest thing in human history because you are trying to configure something which doesn't yet exist, but replicates the way the customs union works. But um, he's a pretty good authority on whether the EU would negotiate that since he was the chief negotiator. OK, I think the the lady on the end there had a question. Was
0: that right? Oh, no? I thought there was an arm in the air there. Sorry. Is is that right? Yes, yeah, yeah. Keep your hand up, because it's under the lights. It's hard to see. Sorry, lovely. There we go.
1: Hi, Kier. Hi. Would you agree that the next leader of the Labour Party needs to be a woman? And if you do do you agree that it should be Emily Thornberry?
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: well, a real, well,
0: real, real one 2 <laughs> of a question.
1: Um, uh, look, I, I actually do feel very strong that we ought to be able to produce a woman leader of the Labour Party. And I think when the Tories say to us, we've had two women leaders, in fact, two um, women prime ministers, that's a very, very strong challenge um, to us. But obviously, we're going to have to wait and see in what circumstances this comes about, when it comes about, and who the candidates are. But as for the challenge, I think it's a strong challenge to us that we ought to have a woman. And um, Emily would be a strong candidate? Well, there'll be a number of candidates. <laughs>
0: <laughs> take that how you will. Uh, uh, any questions over here? Oh, was that? oh yes, the lady down the front, okay. Sorry, I've got, again, then I'll take you down the front, yeah.
3: Uh, yeah, sorry. I just wanted to say, um, it seems inevitable that you're going to come out uh, to be Remain. Do you think that the longer you take to come out for that position, the less likely people are to take you seriously when you do?
1: I worry about that. Um, I do think... I mean, I, I've been clear that um, we... I, I would vote and campaign for Remain if there was a further referendum, for all the reasons I set out earlier, because I truly believe that's the, the best deal that we can have. Um, I think it's, um, it's obviously a discussion going on within the party, but you know we've got to slightly get real about this. If there's going to be another referendum, it's going to be between whatever deal or no deal the next Tory Prime Minister is putting forward, or remain. Um, and it seems to me blindingly obvious, certainly what I would do in those circumstances. I can't see myself going out, knocking on doors, saying uh, would you vote for um, Boris Johnson's deal? I think it's rather good. <laughs> or, or for no deal. But um, I personally think um, we should campaign for Remain and try to make that as, uh, as strong as I can and um, I do think the speed is of the essence here.
0: because so it does feel that th- something has shifted and, and obviously those European election results were a, a kind of a post, a fence uh, a kind of a, a milepost. Um, that people actually once they get into the habit of not voting Labour it's hard to get them back. Yeah this itself. is
1: this is a real concern, I mean you know there's no question that in those EU elections lots of Labour voters deserted us for other parties. Um, most of the analysis shows that for every one voter we lost to the Brexit Party, we lost three to Remain parties. And, I, and, and you know, and I had people to my face telling me that across the country that that's what they were going to do, and that's um, a real problem for any political party. Um, you know, particularly um, in Scotland to lose so heavily, it's hard to make up that ground. In Wales to lose to Plied... Um, but also, for better or for worse, voting Lib Dem had become toxic for people on the left in politics, broadly speaking, because of austerity and, uh, and, and what they did with the Conservative government. And, and now people have got over that; then um, that isn't so toxic because you've already done it once. Um, and equally, for the Greens, um, there was a green surge in 2015. People remember what Jeremy Corbyn did was to pull that green vote into the Labour Party, um, and some of those people come back to the. Great. So it's not, it's not as easy as you might think. This, this vote doesn't just... You can't make assumptions about how people are going to vote next time. You've actually got to fight for that vote. Um, and, um, you know, that's a pretty fundamental thing.
0: OK, the final question of the night to the, uh, to the lady in the front row. The microphone's just coming now. Let us know your name and your question. OK, my name is
2: Julie, civil servant. Very important. Um, what do
1: you do to relax? <laughs> I mean, the, the the two things I do most are at football, I'm, you know, uh, an Arsenal season ticket holder. Uh, I know that's that's at least half the audience that's gone, the if not more. <laughs> she said to relax. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's very quiet. It, it, if you go to the Emirates, it's nice and quiet. We don't like too much noise whilst we're reading the Guardian whilst the game's on. <laughs> keep the noise down um, and, and I play football and, and then we got two kids a 10 year old and 8 an year old and that's I mean I wouldn't say relaxing but it certainly fills that of buses, don't I paint. don't paint I don't paint or make buses no what an odd man Boris Johnson <laughs> <laughs> and that's putting it kindly obviously there's a, there's a
0: similar question to that that's been put to a lot of the Tory leadership candidates about previous drug use um,
1: have you, ever, have you ever dabbled? I've got the perfect alibi here, because if anybody ever turns anything up, I'll just say it was Paul Bint.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, w- 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 given that it could be Paul Bint... <laughs> did, you ever, did you ever try it? I mean, at university, you must have had a... I mean, you, where were you
1: in the 90s? You was... must have been doing
0: pills every week. <laughs>
1: I was studying in the law library at all times. (laughs) Studying in the law library, is it? (laughs) Learning your lines.
0: Learning... (laughs) (laughs) Cheap shot. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, as always, thank you so much for coming down. Um, The next show here is in September. Where well, my guest will be Ken Clark. Oh, brilliant! That's uh, so very exciting. Oh, ah, that'd that. be great. Um, but Keir, honestly, you've been one of the best guests we've ever had, down here. Thanks for it's, having it's me. It's been a phenomenal night. Let's uh, have Keir Starmer. Yeah. Thank you, Thanks, Mark. Thanks. Well, there you go, Keir Starmer. What an absolute thrill. Um, he was brilliant, and I thought—and um, I mean this in, the, in a very positive way—quite different from how he comes across on telly. He's obviously a very professional man. Um, which sounds like a ludicrous um, observation about a politician because so many of them are, but he was just far more open and relaxed um, than perhaps I'd expected. Um, so as well as the intellect and as well as the detail, also a really funny bloke and um, can really uh, laugh along with stuff. And he was just brilliant, couldn't they? Um, So that was just I came away just slightly more reassured about British politics, not necessarily. Uh, any um immediate outcomes, but just that there are grown ups still in the room um, at some level, and uh, that for me was something at the very least. Um, I just thought it was superb, and he is there's something you know that sometimes things come across and sometimes they don't, and I just thought he is, he is really impressive up close, so uh, already of course he's made a huge impact he 's only been an MP for about five minutes, but he has a i'm sure uh, a lot further to go in his career. Um, so, there we go, that was uh, that was Keir Starmer, as I said at the start, two political party podcast specials at the Edinburgh Festival, 14th of August, and on the 20th of August with Nicola Sturgeon, and my new stand-up show, Brexit Pursued by a Bear, which I will be uh, performing at the Edinburgh Festival before taking it uh, uh, on tour at some point, so... Thank you, as always, for downloading this and for all your kind messages and tweets. If you can leave an iTunes review, it genuinely really does help other people find it. Um, And you can email the show, politicalpartypodcast at gmail.com. A few people have been in touch recently about interviewing MEPs, which, particularly with this huge new intake uh, that we've had, I would definitely be trying to interview... Um, some uh, MEPs uh, and also um, someone suggested Ivan Rogers which is a great idea so I'll approach him and um, some local authority people which I absolutely will so um, I will be uh, putting out a few now before Edinburgh the two big specials in Edinburgh and uh, then we're back at the other Palace Theatre I still try and call it the St James Theatre sometimes, with Ken Clark in September. Um, so I'll still be putting these out over the summer, but uh, if you're off on holiday, or even if you're not, just enjoy the weather and everything. Um, I'm recording this hours before England play the United States of America in the World Cup, Women's World Cup semi final So hopefully... I'm, I don't want to curse it. I wish, almost wish I hadn't said this now, but... Well, I have. Thanks for downloading it. Ta-ra!